Hello, the world. I am speaking for the International Space Order in the first worldwide radio and telecast in history. At this moment, over two billion people in every part of the world are focusing their attention on this program. Every nation of the Earth, in a magnificent effort, is contributing of its people and resources in an attempt to reach the moon and proclaim it international territory. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Francis X. Bushman guest stars in the film 12 to the Moon. How can you be a guest star in a movie? Can someone explain it to me? Who is this guy who gets a special credit? Well, according to the Windsor Star, a newspaper from January 2nd, 1960, one-time screen idol Francis K. Bushman, who will appear in 12 to the Moon, has piled up an impressive list of screen firsts. He was the first star to have his name appear on the screen before the title of the film, the first to have a fan club, the first to introduce mood music on the set, the first to be crowned King of the Movies in 1915, the first star in vaudeville, the first to tour the country, the first star on a national radio program, and the first to organize a star interview on radio. Okay, Bushman, if you've done all those things, you can have a special credit, but you can't be a guest star in a movie. It just doesn't work. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is episode 60, and on this episode, we're going to talk about a film that was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000, 1960's 12 to the Moon. I don't believe there are any moon people. Do you? I'm convinced it's possible. In the second half of the show, Nancy will reflect on just how Mike and the bots treated this film. But right now, I'm going to tell you about the film itself. You know, when I watch a film, I can't help but think about the production. Like, if this film had been made by a big-name director with a huge budget, I would have been more apt not to like it and make fun of it. But 12 to the Moon was made for very little money by the manager of a movie theater, so I can't help, through all its faults, and there are many, to be a little impressed. That being said, I need to get one of the biggest problems with this film off my chest. The main plot doesn't start until the 12 people reach the moon. Fair enough, it's called 12 to the Moon, right? The thing is, this film is only 74 minutes long. One hour and 14 minutes, and they don't land on the moon until 24 minutes in, more than a third of the film already gone by. Lunar Eagle number one, Captain Anderson speaking, reporting successful landing on moon. Time is calculated plus 37 minutes. Preparing now for first lunar disembarkation. Next scheduled contact with central Earth control at 0200. 
Congratulations, Lunar Eagle One. Stand by for Secretary General of International Space Order. It would be easy for me to go on a hate-fulfilled rant about all the problems with this film. And to be honest, there will be some. But I like to be positive, and so I'll do my best to talk about the good things this film has to offer. You see, this film was made independently for about $150,000, and it was shot in six or seven days. Some say eight. The story was from a man named Fred Gebhardt, who also produced the film. Fred lived from 1925 to 1972, and his only other writing credit was another MST3K favorite, The Phantom Planet. You know, that's the one where an astronaut lands on an asteroid, then shrinks down so he can be the same size as the little inhabitants of the asteroid. Anyway, 34-year-old Fred Gebhardt was working as a manager of the Fine Arts Theater in Beverly Hills when he formed Luna Productions with a doctor and an attorney. I'm assuming they were there just to provide the money. Twelve to the Moon was their first picture, and I think their only picture. They began production on April 15, 1959. Now, Fred thought he was qualified to write a science fiction tale because he had a huge collection of science fiction and science books valued, he said, at $20,000. And that was 1959 money. But maybe this can account for so many cliche elements in this film, like the standard of being bombarded by meteors, which happens both on the voyage to the moon and on the moon itself. Meteor clusters ahead! How close? You're on a collision course! A collision course! Changing over to auto-reaction pilot, Vargas, take over. And then there's the Russian astronaut who always claims that everything was invented by a Russian. The director of the film was David Bradley, who lived from 1920 to 1997. He was born in Winneka, Illinois, not too far from where I grew up. He only had a few directing credits, including in 1941's Pierre Gint and 1950's Julius Caesar, both starring Charlton Heston. What started as a promising career must have gone south somewhere because his later films include 1958's Drag Strip Riot and The Madman of Mandorius from 1963. That was re-edited for TV and retitled They Saved Hitler's Brain. It has come to be known as one of the worst films of all time. You will see your great victory, mein Führer. Hitler alive. It's it's incredible. For the screenplay, he turned to DeWitt Bodine. DeWitt lived from 1908 to 1988 and wrote the screenplays for some very impressive films, including Val Luton's The Cat People from 43, The Seventh Victim, also from 43, and The Curse of the Cat People from 44. Twelve to the Moon was the second-to-last screenplay, and after that he became a film historian writing many books on film. I wonder if the original script had been, I don't know, more ambitious, but due to the budget, things had to be simplified. For instance, we never see the moon people. I like to think this was a brave, artistic choice, but I'm apt to think that it was more due to the money. I'm guessing here, but I wonder if the original idea was to have aliens in the film, but when they realized the cost, they decided to just not show them. And, you know, I think it's better this way than having some men running around in cheap, silly-looking rubber suits, you know? I 
It's impossible. It can't be. He also opens the film with a man giving a quick bio of all 12 of the crew that will be going to the moon. The men and women who will fly her have been handpicked from the world's leading specialists. They include Dr. Eric Heinrich, who personally designed and supervised the construction of this rocket ship. As Dr. Heinrich is the oldest member of the crew, so Rod Murdoch is the youngest. He holds a doctor's degree in mathematics at the age of 19. I wonder if this was added after the fact to sort of pad out what was going to be a very short movie. And maybe that was because of the compromises that were made from the original script. I'm just guessing. But it's a classic tell-rather-than-show moment, just the opposite of good screenwriting. One of the cheesiest bits of cost-saving was the helmets with no glass in the front. This was okay because it was explained this way. Now I'm turning on my invisible electromagnetic ray screen, which forms a protective shield over our faces, and I will continue my commentary through my micro-tape recorder. That was genius. I think if you wanted to save some money, a good start would be maybe cut the cast in half, like six to the moon. Twelve is a lot of people for such a short little movie, and it's hard to keep track of just who is who. And of course, they never deal with the gravity issue or the lack of it. The explorers, along with cats and dogs, yes, they bring along two cats and a dog, walk around the ship without a problem. Now, yeah, this is often done in low-budget science fiction films, but at least they could have had one of those scenes where, I don't know, you know, a coffee cup floats up and, and everybody starts to laugh. But I guess the easy way to deal with a situation like this is just to not deal with it at all. Okay, okay, I'm starting to make fun of this film, something I, I was, I was going to try not to do. So now I'm going to look at some of the good things. Someone could have made it all up to frighten us off. The film contains a multicultural crew, including a black man and two women. Of the 12 people NASA actually sent to the moon, none of those were of color or female. Of course, the leader of the expedition in 12 to the Moon is a handsome white male, but, uh, you know, one step at a time. Of course, the multicultural crew was part of the plot, a mission to claim the Moon for all races of the Earth. And it also gives some good conflict between the characters. And then they wouldn't have to spend their time with effects or story. The film, for the most part, is shot good, and that's because the cinematography was done by John Elton. John had been working in films since the 20s, and his work includes The Lady and the Monster from 44, The Amazing Mr. X from 48, Father of the Bride from 1950, The Big Combo from 1955, and the film he won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography at American in Paris in 1951. 1960, the year he made this film, was his last year before retiring. He did two films that year, this and Elmer Gantry. And I will say the moon sets, I mean, for the budget, looks decent. I mean, I've seen a lot worse. Six minutes after touching lunar soil, we were bombarded by meteors. Our magnets were strong enough to protect us. And the stock footage at the beginning is used sparingly, so I don't think it distracts too much from the story. And what is the story? What's 12 to the Moon all about? 
Well, 12 highly qualified people, along with two cats, a few monkeys, a dog, and some birds, travel to the moon in an uncommonly spacious rocket ship. It is to claim the moon for all mankind. Like I said, they are multicultural, and this leads to some problems, such as there is one man from Israel who was bitter over his family being killed by Nazis during the Holocaust, something I think we can understand. But he even knows the name of the person responsible. Ironic, isn't it, that for all his brilliance, Bernauer could have been such a Nazi beast. Did you know he was directly responsible for the extermination of more than 100,000 of my people? He killed my mother, my father, my sisters, and my brothers. And it just so happens that the son of the man responsible is aboard the ship using an alias. Reskin doesn't know that Dr. Heinrich's own father was Bernauer. Heinrich was so ashamed of what his father did that he changed his name. Quite a coincidence. Yeah, I know. Oh, and he's also worried about the Russians taking over Israel like they took over Poland or something. Yes. Poland is still on your Russian map. But of course it has already been liberated. Don't get any ideas about liberating my country, Israel. Dr. Olaf, uh, your medical checkup, please. Anyway, it takes forever, but eventually they get to the moon. And, well, it turns out that there are moon people who live under the surface, and they don't like the Earth people being there. We live in a great sealed city below. We are not enslaved by your earthly emotions, greed, lust, passions of conquest. We cannot allow you to stay here, for you would only contaminate our perfect form of harmony. They have the opinion that us of the earth are too immature and dangerous, and they want us gone. After they kidnapped two astronauts, or I guess they weren't really kidnapped, but just sort of gave themselves to the moon people, they tell the others to leave. Before they leave, the moon people tell them that they want their cats for some Strangers reason. Strangers from Earth, before you depart, we must have one thing. You will leave behind the two cats. Cats have a most unusual appeal for us, but unfortunately we have none here on the moon. Maybe this was where Elf came from? Didn't Elf on that TV show, didn't he eat cats or something? I don't know, I never actually watched the show, but I heard. So the nine that are left, one sank into quicksand earlier, they discover that the moon people aren't done messing with them yet. By some scientific means, they, whoever they are, have found a way to freeze all molecular activity. Those whizzing noises. Yes. In other words, they have frozen the lower atmosphere by extracting all thermos particles. But how could that be possible? Sounds very simple. And there's a traitor aboard the ship that, well, has to be subdued. It's a scene that seems to come out of nowhere and doesn't really fit in with the rest of it. At least, I thought it didn't. The ending, and this is a spoiler, it is sort of a, we could have killed you, but we didn't. It seems you're good people, so we'll give you a break. And if you ever happen to be in our neighborhood again, stop by for coffee or something. Return to Earth at once. And someday... When you come back, you will be welcome. Oh, and that brings me to another complaint. Dr. Sigrid Bomar. Clean by ultrasound and massage by air spray jets. <laughs> when I get back to Stockholm, I'm going to have one installed in my apartment. Played by Anna Lisa, a beautiful, blonde, Norwegian-born actress. 
is one of the two that disappear less than halfway through the film. When I first saw her, I thought, well, there's a reason to watch this movie. But then she's gone and never comes back. Boo! I say boo! The leader of the expedition is Captain John Anderson, played by the handsome Ken Clark. Ken lived from 1927 to 2009. He was primarily a B-movie actor. His first big role was in South Pacific in 1958 as Stewpot. He's most famous for something called the Agent 077 Trilogy. These were Italian, Spanish, French, international co-productions that I assume were a parody or rip-off of James Bond. Dr. Hideko Murata is played by Michi Kobe. Return to Earth at once. You have done enough damage. Go on, go on, it's moving again. You have been bombarding us for years incessantly. Leave us in peace. Michi has sort of a sad story. She lived from 1924 to 2016. Being Japanese, her and her family were sent to internment camps during World War II. After the war, she went to New York to be an actor, but found that good parts for Asian women were few and far between. So only after a handful of acting roles, she retired, not too long after this film. She became very outspoken about internment camps, and also campaigned for an apology and reparations for what the Japanese went through. Now, I'm not going to go through all 12 of the actors. Most, well, have the acting quality of community theater actors, if you know what I mean. For the most part, they're in no danger of winning awards. But one of the better actors, the last one I'll talk about, is the man who played Dr. Fedor Orloff, and that's Tom Conway. Tom was a British actor who lived from 1904 to 1967. His real name was Thomas Sanders, and he's the brother of actor George Sanders. In fact, George played the Falcon in three films between 1941 and 42, and after that, Tom took over the role and played the part in ten more films. This film was near the end of Tom's career, and both his life and his career had been ruined by alcohol. It's actually another really sad story. I often wonder about films like this. I mean, you have someone like 27-year-old Richard Weber, who was making his first film, probably thinking, hey, this is my big break. While someone like Conway is probably thinking, I've hit rock bottom. At 0600 Universal Time, a space taxi piloted by Dr. Eric Heinrich and myself will leave the Lunar Eagle to drop atomic bomblets into the crater of the volcano Popocatapetl in an attempt to break the big freeze. And now I'm going to talk about the music. At first I thought some of the music might have been stock, but it was actually done by 23-year-old Michael Anderson. Michael was a theater usher before this film. He worked in the same theater that producer Fred Gebhardt managed. Michael was actually educated in UCS in music and became a classical composer. He doesn't have a lot of film credits, but according to IMDb, he was uncredited as music copyist for the films The World of Henry Orient, The Great Escape, Tower of London, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And you know, on my second viewing, I listened to the music, and it's actually pretty good. Now, after 
after the film was completed, it was picked up by Columbia Pictures. And apparently director David Bradley, according to an article by Roger Ebert in 1997, got into a battle with the studio over the re-editing of the film. Unfortunately, I couldn't find out any information about how the film was changed. In a newspaper article from January 1960, the story read, When producer-writer Fred Gebhardt was questioned as to why he has 10 animals going to the moon in his lunar production, 12 to the moon, and 24 returning, Gebhardt revealed that two of the original animals were rabbits, and space or no space, rabbits will be rabbits. In the book, Twice the Thrills, Twice the Chills, writer Brian Sheen describes the film this way. What starts out as a fairly intelligent and progressive space travel film, complete with important themes as international and interracial cooperation, quickly degenerates into a juvenile, simplistic space opera. One of the scenes that sticks out to me is one where, for some reason, they fire a small explosive at a rock face... and the rock base explodes, and then something that looks like molten lead pours out from a hole onto the ground. One of the elder astronauts runs over and tries to scoop up some of the liquid with his gloved hands, only to be burnt very badly. Deco, emergency kit. I should have known what... Stupid, unthinking fool. I deserve this. Dude, I thought you were a scientist. I mean, not smart. But the thing is, I do think this was an earnest attempt to make a good first trip to the moon tale, but it just turned out silly, uninteresting, and scientifically outrageous. And this was done almost 10 years after George Pal's pioneering film, Destination to the Moon. Now, apparently, Fred Gebhardt, the producer, had a sequel planned called Inside the Moon, but it never happened. In fact, I don't know if Luna Productions ever made another film. The planting of this flag symbolizes the internationalization of the moon to prevent individual nations from any further dispute. Now we shall continue with the second part of our mission, scientific exploration. Like pretty much all of the Rift films that we cover on this podcast, I am of the firm belief that today's feature is best viewed as Rift. Episode 524 of Mystery Science Theater 3000 is no exception, unless you have a handy gang of friends who enjoy a classic bad film to heckle as a group. This gem opens with the customary host segment prologue, which in this case has Mike roped into attending Gypsy's Tea Party, complete with silver service and the lovely hostess sporting a beflowered hat. Mike is clearly uncomfortable and would obviously prefer to be doing pretty much anything else. The bots, of course, find this hilarious as all get out. Well, Gypsy, this tea has uh, really been great. Great, then we see you next Saturday. Uh, well, I have a thing that I have to... Uh, say, Mike, if you and Helena Bonham Carter there are finished, could we please start our tennis game? Well, we could, but Merchant and Ivory are calling. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, down in Deep 13, TV's Frank is hosting a celebrity roast, and the guest of honor is, surprise, Dr. Forrester. I'd like to say that tonight we're honoring one of the world's most brilliant scientists. I'd like to say that, but unfortunately we're stuck with Dr. Forrester. <laughs> no, no, seriously, doctor, in all sincerity, what I really came here tonight to say was, I hate your guts, and I hope you die a slow, painful death. Secure the knowledge that nobody loves you. <laughs> when we cut back to the satellite of love, Tom Servo is playing tennis with Gypsy as umpire? I don't, I don't know what you call a tennis moderator or whatever. Anyway, he takes issue with her call and throws a spectacular tantrum a la John McEnroe. C'est l'autre, s'il vous plaît! Christy Love! Carl, it's 30 love. Oh, whatever. All right, you ready? Here we go. Got it. Oh. Out! Out? Out? What is their problem? What are you blind? Why don't you grow some hair? Servo, come on, you're out of order here. <laughs> I'm out of order? You're out of order! She's out of order! The whole damn court's out of order! Clearly, Kevin Murphy has been waiting all his life to do this, and he does it spectacularly. Luckily, this awkward moment is interrupted by a movie sign, and we're off to the theater. The folks at Best Brain Studios definitely gave this quaint little sci-fi moon mission film the full treatment, and that includes an amazing short. It's a wacky 50s industrial brought to you by General Motors, featuring a pixie-esque gal who, in a non-stop voiceover, sings her way through a look at the latest must-have cars at some kind of GM car exposition. That is the nicest oxygen tent I have ever seen. And Tommy Toon arrives. Let me persuade you to come to the place where tomorrow meets... A subpoena for me? Thank you. It sounds very exciting. May I come just as I am? No, you must come as Geechee Guy. As if this weren't trippy enough, we get to a moment where our gal is carted off to the kitchen of tomorrow, where she's thrilled to demonstrate the kitchen of the future. Just because it's futuristic doesn't mean it's practical. No need for the bride to feel tragic. The rest is push-button magic. So whether you bake or broil or stew, the Frigidaire kitchen does it all for you. You don't have to be chained to the stove all day. Just set the timer and you're on your way. Now you can kick back and tip back according to wild turkey. After a parade of stylish cars paired with stylish models in the latest haute couture fashions, our gal teams up again with a top-hatted baritone, and they drive into the future in the car of the future on the highway of tomorrow. Future may not be available as seen. Personal fates may vary. Future not available in Africa, India, or Central South America. Yeah, there's probably some giant kid standing off holding a control. Really should be getting home. <laughs> Conspicuous consumption makes our love stronger. Look out, the bridge to the future's out. I don't think a single prediction in this acid trip of a film has ever become reality. But then it's called Design for Dreaming, not Design for Accurate Technology Predictions. 
As our glorious Technicolor future fades away, we jump directly to the feature, 12 to the moon, in glorious black and white. Apparently, some futures don't have much of a budget. This is one of my favorite films ever given the MST treatment. It's a ponderous, serious, speculative look at the future of the space program that checks all the 50s, 60s bad sci-fi tropes. First of all, after the Gemini space program, which was two guys, we had Apollo, three guys, so it's the future, and I guess we're now up to an even dozen on a gargantuan rocket ship. This is very progressive, including a multinational crew. Arthur C. Clarke clearly plagiarized this idea in the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, 2010. During the endless introduction, narrated by none other than a dignified Francis X. Bushman of original Ben-Hur film fame, we meet all 12 of our intrepid astronauts, all dressed in recycled 50s-era high-altitude flight suits. When we finally get to the beefcakey captain, John Anderson, Mike and the bots give us the first of a string of names appropriate to an Atomic Age hero. The leader of this gigantic <laughs> undertaking is John Anderson of the United States, yeah. who has dedicated his life to man's conquest of space. Or there was a rocket his around here. His orbital flights have made him world famous. Yes, I'm because Captain Cliff Beefpile. Me. <laughs> he was the unanimous choice of the international. Not space until order Space Mutiny in season eight do we get such a list of cheesy replacement names for a hunky lead actor. My fave from this one is Sledge Riprock. Feels totally like a character from a 60s era World War II adventure comic or maybe a hard bitten noir detective. Our brave crew climb up into the ship and disperse themselves on various decks. Weight seems to be no object for whatever powers this rocket, because this thing is ridiculously cavernous. Seriously, Star Trek can't hold a candle to the extravagant, spacious, open-concept interiors in play here. In keeping with this flagrantly impractical ship design, the acceleration couches are beach lounge chairs from the local Woolworths. <laughs> beach chairs, look! The first Sun Country charter to the moon! <laughs> Man. We get every dang minute of their pre-flight prep, helpfully narrated by the ship's deadly serious chronicler, David. This is Dr. David Ruskin reporting his first entry into the official log of the Lunar Eagle. Neat, huh? We will attempt to report salient information as it occurs. It is now launch time, minus... Uh, something. As the countdown laboriously counts down, we cut to our first intro-movie host segment, where, surprise, the gamine gal from the short pops in to visit our space slaves. I beamed myself on your satellite. I hope that's okay with you. Uh, yeah, sure. I am Nuvina, woman of the future. Will you dance with me? No. Played perfectly by show writer Bridget Jones, she seems really interested in Mike and the Bots, like stalker-level interested. Back in the movie, we're barely past taking crew vitals and setting up some backstory about the elderly German scientist who has a dangerous heart condition. Why is he on the crew again? 
when the best bad sci-fi trope of them all arrives right on schedule. Well, we're gonna die. <laughs> Meteor clusters ahead. How close? You're on a collision course. A collision course. Our gallant crew swerves mightily to avoid disaster. After a silly moment involving the only two women in the sonic shower room getting surprised by Captain Hunky Lead, clearly written to show off his manly physique, we at last approach lunar orbit. Only they don't orbit. They just barge right down there in a big old hurry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Not used to a stick. We made it. We made it. I just want to make a little aside here and say that I love how in this day when this was filmed, before the NASA space launches, the cast pronounces lunar as lunar. Soon, the annoyingly pompous David jumps back into his chronicler role to deliver another dead serious bit of exposition. I'm now switching over to my helmet microphone. I'd love to get the storyboards for this scene. Mm. Wow. Now I'm turning on my invisible electromagnetic ray screen. <laughs> Even I don't buy it. Which forms a protective shield over our faces. <laughs> of course it does. Continue my commentary through my micro tape recorder. Now I'm activating my wings and I'll fly. <laughs> they all, all leave the ship and start exploring the heck out of the place. In case you were wondering, there's more invisible tech. Low budget films have to economize. Then it's time for the next host segment, where Mike and the bots are packing to go with Nuvina to her futuristic world. The bots have reservations, especially Gypsy. Just hope you know what you're doing! Hey, come on, Gypsy, look, she's Nuvina, woman of the future. Yeah, yeah she sings, she dances, huh, she's Nuvina. <laughs> woman of the future, damn straight. Do you really need all those socks, dear? Well, perhaps Jeez. not. Perhaps you are right, my munchkin. Believe me, you won't need this turtleneck. <laughs> wow. She dances a lot, Mike. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sings a lot, too, Mike. <laughs> well, what, that's your life from here on out. <laughs> yep, yep. I'd like to be on the road by six. If the experiment's done, I don't see a problem. That's a can-do. Just remember what happened to Nelson, Eddie, and Jeanette McDonald, Mike. What? Eventually, they die. Mm. Back in the movie, it doesn't take long for the Swedish gal and the Turkish guy to slink off to a mysterious cave and discover breathable air. This enables them to take off their helmets so they can fall into each other's arms and snog madly. Apparently, they've been in love for ages, a fact which has completely eluded the rest of the supposedly brainy crew. As they venture further in, a spectral figure crosses behind them, and the entrance is suddenly closed by a wall of ice. When the rest of the crew come looking for them, they find the footprints of the two missing astronauts disappearing into the ice. Mysterious. They shrug their shoulders and head out, but don't make it far before astronaut Rod steps into some kind of space quicksand. Yep, it's time for another bad trope. Captain Heartthrob leaps into action to save the hapless British guy and is almost lost. Let, let, let go of my foot, Rod. Accept your fate, Rod. It's like kind of a goofy Iwo Jima Good thing I'm the hunky American leader. I would have been done for. At this point, the Swede, the Turk, and the Palm are gone. Now it's just nine to the moon. 
The crew trudge back to the ship, saddened by the rapid decimation of their team. Well, I suppose, over. Yeah, been a long day, over. They haven't been aboard long when the lights go out and an electronic ticker tape of gibberish symbols starts rolling across one of their readouts. Since it looks vaguely like, quote, oriental picture writing, unquote, they get the Japanese gal right on it. And, of course, she can immediately translate. Looks like hieroglyphics. It's not Egyptian, mm-hmm. not African. It looks like oriental picture mm-hmm. writing. Could it be Chinese? Oh, if only we had a... Oh, we do. It's incredible. The Mariners are in the series. Do you recognize it, Hideko? Is it something you understand? Well, I'll try. No soup with buffet. Turns out, it's the moon people making contact, and they are not amused. They want the Earth team to get off their lawn, minus Sigrid and Salim, of course. After a brief moment of drama between the Israeli and the German, the communication from the moon lords resumes. They have another request. The same symbols. Translate please, Adeko. If you lived on the moon, you'd be home by now. From Earth. Before you depart, we must have one thing. Yams. We will leave behind the two cats. <laughs> cats have a most unusual appeal for us. Yeah. But unfortunately, we have none here on the moon. They interest us almost as much as the two human beings who joined us. They were delicious, by the way. Apparently, they don't have anybody to walk across their keyboards and knock their coffee cups off their desks. So, Captain Anderson initiates Operation Runaway Briskly, and they skedaddle. Captain's law. We're running away as fast as we can. Lost Inga and Omar. Too bad. In the fourth host segment, Nuvina has started to wear out her welcome up on the satellite of love. She's turned the bots into kitchen appliances, and that's kind of a deal-breaker for Mike. Nuvina, weird singing lady from the future. My robot friends are not meant to be enslaved. Robots are machines like anything else. They're meant to be used and put on the shelf. That's anti-robot! Nuvina, even though it breaks my heart, I'm going to have to ask you to depart. Yeah, don't worry, guys. I'm sure there'll be another magical, mystical singing lady coming along any time. <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. Back in the movie, after a few more moments of drama, including yet another run-in with those persistent meteors, they reach Earth orbit. But the moon people have a long reach, and they've put the whole planet into some kind of cryogenic stasis. The situation is looking dire until a plan is concocted to drop a minor atomic bomb into a volcano, the resulting massive explosion of which could break the big freeze. They draw lots, and in an attempted moment of pathos, the German scientist, son of a notorious Nazi, and the melodramatic Israeli guy draw the short straws. The crew rig their space taxi, yes, that's what they call it, with a bunch of tiny atomic bombs and prepare to launch it with the crew of two above volcano Popocatapetl. Say that five times fast. Russian scientist Orlov goes back to check on things and finds the traitorous French guy, a secret communist, sabotaging the capsule. 
Frenchie attacks him, and it looks like lights out for Orlov when Captain Anderson swoops in and saves the day. Jacques Brel is under siege. Soon it's time to launch the space taxi, and at this point, the movie just embraces full suspension of disbelief. Wow. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, the budget just ran out, so from here on out, just bear with us. In keeping with the apparently non-existent budget, the interior is just a black box with a two-shot close-up of the two brave bombers. You don't think we'll survive this? You really are as dumb as you look. I don't know. What am I saying? No, we're not going to survive it. The bomb works if we pull out in time. Looks like they're in a Wham! video. <laughs> they fly down, they drop their bombs successfully, but in an ironic bit of hand wavium, they are captured by the big freeze and can't pull out. As they plummet to their doom, sacrificing themselves for the good of humanity, we are treated to a special effects by Timmy shot of a tiny model with a sparkler jammed into its stern, glued onto a dowel piloted by an off-camera hand. Here, Mike delivers my favorite line of the experience. God bless you, David. Oh, did I sneeze? Oh, oh, we're gonna die. Whoa, that's gotta hurt. Ha! There was clearly a stick involved. <laughs> At this point, the Big Freeze has become so powerful that it even affects the spaceship, which you can see from the chunks of dry ice dumped all over the consoles. They are in deep doo-doo. The moon people take a moment to gloat, but then admit that they are impressed by this sacrifice and relent in their oppressive freezing operation. The freeze is lifted in a magically immediate way. Yay! You were lucky to have escaped it all. Prepare for landing. I did it. I saved us all. I'm Chunk Iron Chest and I won. <laughs> Back on the bridge of the Satellite of Love, the bots console Mike about losing out on life with Nuvina while he eats a bowl of chocolate chip cookie dough. Then they read some letters. Down in Deep 13, Nuvina pops in for a visit. She wants to dance with Frank. Frank is typically gormless. Yeah, you see there, Frank, that's the trouble with relationships. They're trouble. Yeah, but... Ah! Ah! Frank, I have said no friends in the house. But it's her. It's the lady. <laughs> I can fulfill your wildest dream. Frank, my man. I want a croissant. Dare to dream, Frank. <laughs> Nuvina's going to crash here tonight. <laughs> so where's my croissant? Hey! Nuvina bails. And we're done. This episode's stinger is either the Russian or German scientist, they're basically doppelgangers, muttering his disgust. Kind of typical for a scientist, when you think about it. Ah, ridiculous. Thanks, Nancy. You know, I hadn't seen that MST episode in a long time, and I forgot how good it was. I really loved the short at the beginning. It's just so weird. One thing I thought of while watching... The show again is that, well, Mike and Bridget were married in real life, and I think that makes the times that she appears on camera even more fun. And strangely, you know, they're still married today and have a couple of kids. If you ever get a chance to watch the riff tracks where Bridget and Mary Jo Pearl do them together, they're fantastic. 
Anyway, I really enjoyed you talking about that episode. Thanks a lot. You know that Easter vacation trip we had planned for Acapulco? Uh-uh. There might be a slight change in destination. Really? Maybe say the moon. <gasps> Booster, go. Retro. Or go flight. GNC. This is the crew of the Apollo 13. Wishing everyone back on Earth uh, a pleasant evening. A little bit before I go. You know, Russell was going to contribute to today's show, but fell ill and had trouble speaking, so he just couldn't record. He sent me the script of what he was going to say, and I was going to attempt to read it, but sorry, Russell, I just didn't have time. Now, as far as 12 to the Moon, this is a classic example where, as a producer, you might want to take the money you have available, then look at what you're hoping to accomplish, putting them on a scale and seeing which way it tips, and there might be a certain point where you, you have to tell yourself, maybe we should try something else. I mean, a science fiction story where 12 people travel to the moon is pretty ambitious for $150,000. Now, if you out there have any thoughts on 12 to the moon, or you want to correct anything we've said here today, you can send your thoughts to daysofcelluloid at gmail.com, daysofcelluloid, all being one word. You can email me with your thoughts, opinions, suggestions, criticisms, or even just to say hello. Or you can use our Facebook page. It's called, of course, Celluloid Days. On Twitter, we are at Celluloid underscore Days. Next week, I'm going to talk about a film based on a true story, and that's Apollo 13. A film directed by Opie Taylor, I mean, uh, Richie Cunningham, I mean, uh, Ron Howard. It stars Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, Bill Paxson, Ed Harris, and Gary Sinise. I could have also put this film under one of Jeff's favorite films, but I'll do it as one of my films based on a true story podcasts. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. Take care. Thanks, Nancy, for contributing. And, Russell, I hope you're feeling better. Take care. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Multipass. You know this multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.